I'm Michael Klein, Executive Editor of Econofact, a nonpartisan web-based publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. At Econofact, we bring key facts and incisive analysis to the national debate on economic and social policies, publishing work from leading economists across the country. You can learn more about us and see our work at www.econofact.org. Most people do not think of a religious basis to economics. Instead, the caricature, one that is not too far off base probably, is that economists are trained to work with sophisticated mathematical models and advanced statistical techniques to analyze the behavior of humans who are viewed as nothing more than calculating machines, trying to maximize material wants and needs. But in his recent book, Religion and the Rise of Capitalism, Professor Benjamin Friedman of Harvard University shows how early economists, including those in the late 19th century who founded the American Economic Association, saw economics as deeply linked to religion. Furthermore, in this deeply researched scholarly book, Professor Friedman also explores how religious beliefs influence people's opinions on economic issues in the 20th century and continue to do so today. Benjamin Friedman is a William Joseph Mayer Professor of Political Economy at Harvard University and this year celebrates his 50th year as a member of that faculty. In his long and productive career, he has authored more than 170 scholarly articles and written or edited a dozen books, including The Moral Consequences of Economic Growth. Ben, it's great to have you on Account of Fact Chats. Thanks very much for joining me. Thanks, Michael. I'm delighted to be with you. Ben, you make the argument, which some people will find counterintuitive, that although the great figures of the 18th century in economics, like Adam Smith and David Hume, were not religious individuals, but nonetheless, their economic ideas were powerfully influenced by religious thinking. How did that come about, that idea that you had? Well, first of all, let me say that you're exactly right about Smith and Hume. You know, these people were international celebrities in their own lifetimes, and therefore we know a lot about them biographically. Uh, Hume, for example, was a well-known uh, opponent of, uh, outspoken opponent of any kind of organized uh, religion. He used to refer to Church of England bishops as agents of superstition. Uh, for this reason, he was never able to get a university appointment, uh, even though he tried several times. Smith was much more private about his personal religious commitments, but there's no evidence whatsoever of any uh, serious uh, commitment or belief on either of their part. And so to make an argument, as I do in the book, that these people were powerfully influenced by the religious thinking of their day, uh, requires a certain amount of, um, of, of uh, apparatus. And the apparatus I choose is a device that I associate with Einstein. Uh, it's the notion of the worldview, the 
built der Welt in Einstein's original German. And the way Einstein put it is that the world is just too complicated for anybody to be able to address or analyze frontally. And so what each person does who tries to think hard about the world is to come up for himself or herself with some kind of image of the world in Einstein's language. You and I as economists would call it a model, I suppose. And it's a way of cutting through the complexity. And Einstein was very clear that he wasn't just thinking about physicists. He mentioned poets and painters. He mentioned philosophers. And that's important because Smith thought of himself as a philosopher. He was a professor of moral philosophy. Uh, the word economist hadn't even been invented yet. And the argument I make in the book is that these people lived at a time when religion was more central and more important and more pervasive than anything you and I know in our modern Western society. And therefore, religion was all around them in multiple dimensions. And moreover, these key elements of religious thinking that I'm uh, emphasizing in the book were hotly contended right at the time when Smith and Hume were coming into young adulthood. And I argue that they were exposed to this kind of debate and thinking all the time, and it couldn't have helped but influence their worldview, again, to use the Einstein phrase. And therefore, at a kind of indirect level, yes, religious thinking did influence the creation of modern Western economics, even though I certainly would not make the absurd uh, claim that either Smith or Hume was a religiously committed individual. So moving ahead from the end of the 18th century and into the 19th century, especially in colonial America, and then ahead from that, the development of economics in America and specifically the founding of the American Economic Association towards the end of the 19th century depended largely on two men, John Bates Clark and Richard Eli. So economists listening to this will be familiar with these names because there's the John Bates Clark Award given every other year to an economist younger than 40, and it's seen as one of the most prestigious awards in the field, maybe even more so than the Nobel. And the most prominent keynote address at the annual American Economic Association meeting is a Richard Eli lecture. How did these men view the relationship between economics and religion? Well, you're right that they did so very differently from Smith and Hume. But let me start this piece of the story earlier on than uh, Clark and Ely. Right from the very beginning of economics in America, which was in the first half of the 19th century, the situation was very different in regard to the role of religion. The key propagators of uh, economics in America were religious figures uh, in a way that Smith and Hume absolutely were not. So, for example, the first person to teach a college course that we know of in uh, America was a man named John McVicker. He taught at Columbia and in keeping with what Columbia was about and what its origins were, McVicker was an Episcopal priest and the author of the best-selling economics textbook in America before the Civil War uh, was Wayland, Francis Wayland, 
who was also the president of Brown University, and again, in keeping with Brown's origins, Wayland was a Baptist minister. Now, we come forward to the period in the latter half of the 19th century that you're mentioning. The American Economic Association was founded in the 1880s by a group of people who were all very committed to uh, religious uh, ideas and the role of religion in society. They were part of something that was called the social gospel uh, movement. Uh, Richard Ely was a very key contributor to the social gospel movement himself. Uh, in the uh, year in which the American Economic Association with, was founded, he published not one book, but two. And one had the word economics in the title, and the other had the word Christianity in the title. So he was in this uh, all the way. And John Bates Clark is another example. Clark uh, was an undergraduate at Amherst and had thought that he was going to go to the Yale Divinity School and study for the congregational ministry until in his senior year, his professor persuaded him to go into economics instead. So these people were very different from Smith and Hume. They were, I believe, self-consciously trying to bring their uh, religious commitments to bear on their economics, and it shows uh, in their writing. They wanted to advance a world in which uh, Christian principles were brought to bear on the life of the nation, including in its economic life, and they knew that the churches, they wanted the churches to play a more active role, that's what the social gospel was all about, but they knew that the churches weren't really up to the task, and therefore they looked to the government to intervene, but somebody had to figure out what the government was supposed to do, and both Ely and Clark thought, well, that was a task for this new science of economics. So here again, but in a much more explicit, open way, religious thinking was a great influence on the development of our subject. So you mentioned the social gospel, Ben, and another idea around the same time, I guess, was the gospel of wealth. Can you compare and contrast the ideas of the social gospel and the gospel of wealth? And I guess both of them arose out of some religious ideas. Well, yes. The key issue going on in the United States at this time was the contrast, which was very surprising to most people at the time, uh, the contrast uh, of having enormous economic growth. The period from the end of the Civil War up to the 1890s was the fastest per capita growth that our country has ever seen, more than 3%. Uh, per uh, annum in real terms. That's better than we've ever had uh, before or since. But yet, but yet, uh, in the midst of this, there was widespread poverty, especially in the nation's growing cities, because uh, this was a period of great urbanization. Uh, in the late uh, 1870s, Henry George famously published his great book called Progress and Poverty. And the point of George's title was to call attention to this great progress, that great contrast, uh, puzzlement. Yes, there was all this economic progress, but yet increasingly uh, large numbers of people were poor. Now, what to do about that? 
the social gospel, as I've already mentioned, was galvanized by this contrast uh, between the growth and the poverty and people like Clark and Ely and also many of the great uh, Protestant uh, ministers of the time, people like uh, Walter Rauschenbusch, Washington Gladden, Josiah Strong and others, wanted the churches to play a leadership role in addressing the hardships that many people were facing now that they realized that economic growth on its own was not going to do the trick. And by contrast, as you rightly mentioned, there was another group of people less cohesively organized, which came to be known as the, the, the gospel of wealth. That's the title of a famous essay written by Andrew Carnegie. Uh, here, the clergymen I'm thinking of were uh, people like Henry Ward Beecher, probably the most uh, eminent uh, clergyman in the United States uh, at the time. He was the minister at Plymouth Congregational in Brooklyn, uh, but others as well, people like Russell Conwell at the Baptist Temple in uh, Philadelphia. These people thought that private initiative was all that was necessary. They didn't see a need for... Um, a massive intervention in the economy. They didn't see the need for the government to do anything. Yes, they wanted the churches to be involved, but not in any organized way. Uh, each church should have its soup kitchen, great, but they thought private initiative would do the trick. And incidentally, uh, this is a debate that we're still having in the United States today. <laughs> this ought to be absolutely familiar to everybody. Yeah, no, as you're as you're describing it and as I read it in the book, you know, it it echoes into the present. You also write how the mainline Protestant religion could accommodate both the social gospel and the gospel of wealth at the same time. Yes, it was a very interesting uh, development and here I want to be careful not to pretend to be a church historian like you. I'm an economist. But in brief, the situation was that at the around the turn of the 20th century, both of these movements, the social gospel and the gospel of wealth, found themselves coming under attack from a quite different line of Protestant uh, uh, group that we would call today fundamentalists. And under the pressure of the fundamentalist attack, uh, in short, the gospel of wealth crowd and the social gospel crowd came together under the umbrella of what was then called the Federal Council of Churches, founded in 1908. The body still exists. It's now called the National, Con uh, National Council of Churches, and it is the umbrella organization for what we think of today as the, um, the mainline Protestant uh, groups. Let's talk a little bit about the evangelicals. I learned from your book that the name fundamentalist comes from a 12-volume series called The Fundamentals that was published between 1910 and 1915. My understanding from your book is that part of the rejection of the social gospel by fundamentalists reflected their view of the second coming, uh, what's called a premillennialist view. I wasn't familiar with different Christian views about this, and I found it interesting 
that these views influenced opinions about the proper role of government in ameliorating economic hardship. Yes, that's right. In brief, Christians who look forward in some literal way to the uh, second coming of the Messiah uh, are divided between people who think this second coming will uh, occur before the millennium, that is the thousand years of uh, bliss foretold in the book of Revelation, uh, and those who think it'll come after. Now, for those who think it'll come after, there's no issue because that means they are committed to the view that the world will become better before the world ends. And indeed, because the world has to become better before the world ends and the second coming arrives, there's a a religious imperative associated with making the world better. That brings the millennium closer and brings the second coming closer. But if people believe that the second coming will arrive and the world will end and no longer be inhabited by people like you and me uh, before the thousand years of bliss occur, then uh, efforts to make the world better seem a little bit futile. This has always been a point of tension in the uh, evangelical community because as I hope everybody knows, The evangelical churches were very involved in major American reform movements like temperance and like abolition of slavery, but yet they've always stood apart from certain, uh, from from more uh, individually based efforts to improve the world. And even today, if you were to go, if I were to go to an evangelical uh, church and ask members, do they think The government ought to be running anti-poverty programs. The government ought to be uh, helping in imposing environmental uh, restrictions to a much greater extent than among other Americans. The answer would be no. So uh, you said people like you and me, I guess you mean a certain type of non-believer. No, I don't. I don't. I wasn't. No, no, no. I wasn't. Uh, I, I wasn't uh, identifying anybody as a non-believer, and certainly not myself. Uh, I was identifying that as people who are not evangelicals. And one of the interesting things I found in doing the empirical work for the latter chapters of the book is that when we examine poll data, things like Gallup polls, Roper polls, and so forth, on the attitudes of Americans, even uh, restricting the conversation just to Protestants, the views on policy questions like should the government have anti-poverty programs, should the government have uh, ha- have environmental restrictions, should the government have other forms of regulation of business, mainline Protestants like Episcopalians and Presbyterians and Methodists and Congregationalists and so on have very different views on that uh, so those poll questions than do members of evangelical churches. And so the this, this split, uh, which really dates from the publication of the Fundamentalists 100 years ago, uh, is still with us. Well, I want to get to that poll data that you cite a little bit later, but for the antecedents to that, for example, you quote, the preacher Billy Sunday, who was involved in the 30s during the Great Depression, he said that anti-depression initiatives were, and I quote here from your book, 
serpentine coils of this communistic, socialistic, atheistic monster, and that the Blue Eagle sign that some businesses displayed in the 30s when participating in the National Recovery Administration was viewed as a precursor to the so-called mark of the devil, or mark of the beast, sorry, foretold in Revelation. So I guess you're suggesting that the strong antipathy to programs that help people during these very desperate times, there is a religious basis because of this premillennialism. Yes, I think that's right. But I think part of this has also been captured by conservative uh, economic interests. This started to happen, as you uh, indicated, during the Great Depression. There was an enormous uh, effort uh, on the behalf of the conservative business community to rope in these uh, fundamentalist groups in opposition to Roosevelt. Lots of people thought that Roosevelt personally was the Antichrist, incidentally. But I argue in uh, my book that this coming together of religious conservatism and economic conservatism really took off after World War II in response to the communist uh, threat. Uh, in effect, both groups recognized that they were facing a common enemy. Communism was at the same time the antithesis and enemy of Western-style free market capitalism, and it was the antithesis and enemy of Western-style religion. And so these two groups that might or might not have otherwise had something in common recognized that they were fighting the same battle. Uh, the person uh, to whom I look as the exemplar of this is uh, Billy Graham. Uh, Billy Graham, I hope people will know, was an extraordinarily uh, popular Baptist uh, preacher. Uh, for decades, he was always at the top of the most admired list in the Gallup poll. Uh, but uh, Early in his career, uh, Graham was financed by and drew support from the conservative business community and, and championed in his early days all sorts of um, conservative business uh, ideas, things like in uh, opposition to labor unions. You might wonder, what does this have to do uh, with religion? But uh, Graham was opposed to uh, labor unions, and took other conservative positions as well. So I think it was really in uh, in response to the communist threat that these two groups came together. So picking up on that, that was something in the 50s and 60s and certainly is evident today. And as you mentioned, you use this polling data at the end of your book. Um, you have a very interesting discussion of how religious views shape opinions of economics. And importantly, you point out that people don't vote in line with their economic interests. For example, many people who would benefit from higher taxes on rich households support a regressive tax system, that is one that taxes the rich less. And you also show that the data don't support many plausible arguments for these voting patterns. But the striking result to me, and the one you already mentioned, is that evangelical Christians consistently favor conservative economic policies that aren't necessarily in their own economic interest. And you talk about the religious sources of this, the turn away from predestination, the strong 
historical tradition of Protestant voluntarism and premillennialism. Can you just briefly explain how each of these contributes to conservative view of the role of government in the economy? Well, I'll duck on predestination because I don't think predestination has a lot to do with that. The central one to which I point is the premillennialism for reasons that I've indicated already. If you take the Bible seriously and literally, and those are not uh, the same, incidentally, it's very easy to take the Bible utterly seriously but to think of many passages in the Bible as metaphorical or allegorical. Uh, But if you take the Bible not only seriously, but literally, then you believe that, uh, as foretold in Revelation 20 and 21, uh, there will be a period of a thousand years of earthly bliss before the great conflagration destroys the world, and there will be in the words of the text, a new earth and a new heaven. Now, uh, if you believe that all of this is going to happen uh, before the, 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 uh, the millennium uh, will be um, preceded by the ending of the earth, there just isn't any point to trying to make uh, the world systematically better what matters is saving souls. And the great American figure, Dwight Moody, might be a familiar name to many people. Moody Publishing Company is still around. Uh, Dwight Moody used to say, what matters is saving souls, that is converting individuals so that when the second coming arrives, they will be ready. I think this is the absolute, uh, absolute heart of it. Now, you also mentioned a second uh, element, which is uh, Protestant voluntarism. Uh, Lots of religious traditions have uh, voluntarist uh, elements, but especially among Protestants, there's uh, been a long long, uh, history of this in which the voluntary act of giving uh, is of utmost importance. If I support uh, programs for the poor through my taxes because the Internal Revenue Service sends me a bill uh, or because I know I'll go to jail if I don't uh, pay them, that isn't voluntarism. And there is this strong strain in uh, many Protestant denominations of voluntarism so that Uh, If you're being sent a bill uh, by your church for your dues, that conflicts with uh, voluntarism. And in the same way, if you're paying your taxes and supporting the poor only through your tax revenues, because you'll go to jail if you don't, then that too is a conflict with voluntarism. So, Ben, I I learned so much from your book, and as I mentioned, I was really impressed by its breadth of scholarship, and I was also impressed by the way it shed light on current views about economic policy. So, thank you for the book, and thank you very much for joining me on Econofact Chats to discuss it. Thanks, Michael. I always enjoy talking to you, and today was no exception. This has been Econofact Chats. To learn more about Econofact and to see the work on our site, 
you can log into www.econofact.org. Econofact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thanks for listening.